0: let me ask you just show of hands. How many of you got spanked as a child? Let's see your hands up in the air. Okay. Almost all of us. I I did too. Uh, My, my, my wife got spanked as a child. And in fact, uh, one of the times she uh, was told to go to her room because she was going to get spanked. And don't you love that when your parents would tell you to go to your room and you'd have to sit there, you know, and wait for a spanking. I mean, that's the worst, right? I just wanted to get it over with, but, but you'd sit there and wait forever. And, uh, Her dad, my father-in-law, told her to go to her room. She's going to get a spanking. And uh, so she went to her room. He walked into the room. He opened the door and found her reading her Bible. She she was doing her best to get out of that spanking, to get out of that punishment. And I I wonder if if he told her or if she even realized that she was reading a book that says that if you spare the rod, you spoil the child. So uh, he did not spare the the rod. He, He He spanked her, even though she was reading her Bible. He said, I'm proud of you for reading your Bible, but but you're still getting a spanking. And um, that that begs the question, though, since the scripture says that God is a perfect heavenly father, does, does God punish us for sin? Are there consequences for sin? You see, in this series that we call Creed, We talk about basic Christian theology, like Christian basics that every Christian should know. It doesn't mean you do know them, but it does mean that you need to if you're a Christian. This is basic Christian theology. Every Christian should know and needs to know. And so last summer, we talked about uh, the the scripture, the history of the scripture, how it came together, the authority of the scripture, the the, the sufficiency of scripture. It's called the doctrine of the word of God. We talked about that last summer in our Creed series. And so we're continuing that series. We're picking back up this summer and we'll do this each summer where we'll talk about basic Christian theology theology can also be called doctrine. A doctrine is what the whole Bible teaches us about a particular topic. And so as we dive into doctrine today, I hope you're prepared to be here for the rest of the day. Cancel your lunch plans, uh, because we gotta talk about what the whole Bible says about the doctrine Recovering today. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm already hungry and starving. I'm sure you are too. I'm not gonna be here all day. You can catch up from last week. We talked about this last week. We're gonna talk about it and finish it up next week, but we're gonna do our best to tell you what the Bible says about these particular doctrines that we're covering. Throughout church history, most of the major doctrine that Christians believe has been put into what's called a creed, a Christian creed. And so maybe you've heard of things like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. These are creeds that Christians have put together to put the the biggest and, and most basic Christian doctrine into these creeds that are made up of these creed statements, these doctrinal statements that, that give you an idea that summarize basic Christian theology. And so thus the, the name of the series, Creed, we're talking about what we believe as Christians. We're talking about doctrine. And as a church, we called ourselves the City Church when we started this church. It was based on the idea that Jesus said his followers would be like a city on a hill. And over the last couple of years, we've talked a lot about what this city looks like. This, this, this place, what does it look like? What, what does it feel like? What, what does it represent? And we've also said it's not just a place, it's a people. And so who are these people? What are they like? How do they live? What characterizes these people that live in this city? And we've said this to summarize that these people are a people of grace and truth. John said about Jesus that Jesus was full of grace and truth and So as his followers, it makes sense that we would be a people that seek after grace and truth, that live out grace and truth, that we are passionate about grace and truth. And so we believe, because Jesus said you should love the Lord your God with all of your mind, that we need to learn the truth about God. We need to learn God's truth so that Ephesians 4 says this, so that we can have an unshakable foundation in shaky times. And man, is that not relevant for right now? We need unshakable truth in shaky times. And so if you're going to have that unshakable truth in a shaky time, you've got to know the truth. You've got to know what God's word says and what it teaches. You need to understand basic Christian theology, basic Christian doctrine. If you're going to have that firm foundation, that Paul says in Ephesians 4 that will keep you secure. When when the wind starts to blow and the waves start to come, you can stand firm in the truth of God's word. Paul also says in Ephesians 4, it's this truth. It's this firm foundation. It's knowing God's truth. It's in loving the Lord your God with all of your mind that you'll be able to spot false teaching and false teachers because they're out there. You'll be able to pick out what's true and what's false in any Christian book or when, when a pastor starts speaking. And yes, you should do the same thing with me. I am a man, I'm not perfect, I'm not infallible. God's word is our source of truth, it's not me. And so the book of Acts says that these Bereans, these Christians would examine the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. You need to be doing that too. Anytime you read a book, anytime you listen to a pastor, you need to be examining the scripture to see if what you're hearing, if what you're reading is true. You need that filter. And it's in knowing the truth of God's word that will give you that filter to be able to judge false teaching and false teachers. But before we get started, we've got to make three assumptions so that we're all on the same page. And, and just in case we're not on the same page, you know at least where I'm coming from. So three assumptions. We talked about these last week. Number one, that the God who is spoken of in the Bible exists And that he has spoken or he's revealed himself, his purposes and his ways in the Bible. So we believe here that God exists and that he's revealed himself. If he had not revealed himself, then we would be left to guess. And that's every religion on the face of the planet. It's man's best guess at who God is, what he's like and how we get to God and how we get to this afterlife. It's man's best guess. But God didn't leave us to guess. We don't have to guess. God has revealed himself to us, his purposes and his ways in the scripture. And so as we read the scripture, we get to know God, his purposes and his ways because thankfully... God has chosen to reveal himself, to disclose himself. And so he has spoken to us, but that leads to the second assumption. Therefore the Bible, the scripture is true. And it is our only absolute standard of truth. It is our only absolute standard. It is the only source of God's truth. It is the only source of God's revelation of himself is found. In the scripture leads to the third assumption, which we're talking about in this series. This is our creed statement in this series. Disobeying God's word is disobeying God himself. God exists. God has revealed himself, his purposes and his ways in the scripture. And so that means everything written in the scripture is true. Scripture says all scripture is God breathed. It's all from God. It's all inspired by God. It's all the inspiration I need. I... Man, I love being inspired by other people and other pastors and books, but but I don't really have to have that. The scripture is all the inspiration I need. And so to disobey God's word is to disobey God himself. So in this series, here's what we're talking about. Here's the doctrine we're covering. We're covering the doctrine of sin. We're talking about the doctrine of sin. And as followers of Jesus who have the Holy Spirit, we should... We should, every follower of Jesus should firmly resolve in their mind to abandon as false or to repent from sin. That is any idea, attitude or action, which is found to be clearly contradicted by the teaching of Scripture. Now, I must say that again. Because this is what should be true for all of us as followers of Jesus we should firmly resolve in our minds to abandon as false or to confess his sin any idea, attitude, or action which is found to be clearly contradicted by the teaching of scripture because to disobey God's word is to disobey God himself. It's sin. So let's go to Genesis chapter four. I told you last week in this series, we're looking at the first occurrence of the word sin and it's in the story of Cain and Abel. The first example or story of sin is with Adam and Eve, and we covered that in a series we did before Christmas last year called Snake Crusher. So we talked about the first occurrence of sin. This time in this series, as we talk about the doctrine of sin, we're looking at the first time the word occurs, which is in Genesis chapter four, when God tells Cain, hey, sin is crouching out the door and it wants to devour you. We talked about that last week. So we're going to pick up from where we left off, right? So Cain and Abel are the, the sons of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve have sinned against God, sin is inherited. You might remember that last week. Now Cain and his kids and their kids and their kids. And so you and I, we we inherit this sin nature, this desire to sin. And so sin is crouching at the door, ready to control, ready ready to master Cain and God warns him of it because you see Cain and Abel have submitted sacrifices to God. Abel submits a sacrifice and Cain not to be upstaged by his little brother. And a lot of us can understand that offers his own sacrifice to God. And I told you last week why I think God rejected Cain's sacrifice, but accepted Abel's sacrifice. We talked about that last week, but, but Cain's upset. And so that's where we find ourselves now here in verse eight, Genesis chapter four, verse eight. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother, Abel, and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. We said last week, Cain didn't think anybody was there. He didn't think anybody saw what he had done. But there's always somebody watching. Even when you're alone, even when no one's looking, Someone is looking and God sees it. In fact, God says to the Israel's prophets, he said, hey, these fools, (laughs) he calls them fools, is foolish. You're acting like a fool when you act like I don't see everything that you're doing. And so God sees it and says, you're the blood of your brother's crying out to me. Now, watch this, you're cursed. It's the result of sin. It's the curse of sin. God told Adam and Eve, hey, if you eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, you will die. It's the curse of sin. It's death. And so everything, our bodies, this world, this earth, everything is dead, dying, decaying because that's the curse of sin. So now you are cursed too because of your sin and you're banished from the ground, which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will this ground, so the ground's been cursed too, yield good crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. And Cain replied to the Lord, my my punishment is too great for me to bear. You have banished me from the land, and watch this, and from your presence. You've made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord replied, no, for I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. And so Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Last week we saw that God is holy. And so he hates sin. We define sin, what it is, that God hates sin. We talked about what sin does, that it seeks to redefine our bad decisions as good ones, our our failures as success, our success as failure. God, or sin rather, redefines our sin. Sin destroys us. We talked about a lot of that last week, but here's what I want you to see this week. And that is that God is righteous and just, and so he must punish sin. We would say about any judge that didn't punish a lawbreaker, that didn't dole out the sentence for the law breaking, that they were a bad judge. We wouldn't say they're a good judge. We would say they're a bad judge if they did not punish the criminal. The same is true about God. If God did not punish sin, he could not be righteous and just, but God is righteous and just to his very core. It's who he is. And so he must punish sin. And so here's what we're talking about today. We're talking about the consequences of sin. Last week, we talked about the definition of sin. This week, we're talking about the consequences of sin of sin. About a year and a half ago, my son, Levi, like a lot of kids, maybe like some of you, loved to play the game Fortnite. He played it all the time. The problem was, parents, maybe you've seen this too, when Levi would play Fortnite, he would be a little testy with us. He was a little anxious from playing the game and trying to win or getting killed or whatever. I mean, he he was, the, the anxiety would build up in him. And so if you talk to him while he was playing, it was, right, you know, leave me alone or hey, in a minute or no, not right now. Or don't talk to me right now. I mean, he would just, it was like, it, it, he was on edge the whole time he was playing. And I kept warning Levi. I said, Levi, this isn't good. This game puts you like way on edge. You're real testy with us. It's, you, you get disrespectful. It's not okay. Uh, if you do this again, I'm going to take away the game and I'm going to take it away for a week. And so I said, this is on you you know what the consequence will be. It's your choice. We're not choosing this for you. You are choosing this for you. Well, sure enough, that week he said something to his sister while he was playing the game. And if he hadn't played well, even after the game, he, he, he would pop off real fast. And, and so his sister said something to him. He popped off to his sister Nixon. And I said, okay, that, that's it, Levi. You're grounded from the game for a week. And so he's flipping out, he's upset. How could you do this? No, 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 I didn't do this. You chose this. You chose the, I didn't choose the consequence. You chose this for yourself. So don't get mad at me, just get mad at yourself. And so I took the game away. Week goes by, I said, Levi, I'm gonna give you the game back. But if you do this again, if you act this way to us or to your brother or sister again, then the game's gone forever. He said, what? No, no. I said, yeah, it's going to be gone forever. Like you're never going to see this game again. Well, like any kid, he didn't believe me. Right. And so what did he do? He's playing the game. He's anxious. He pops off to us. I said, all right, bring me the game for how long? Well, Levi, you know how long it's gone for good no, you can't do that, it's too much, you, can, you can't do that. I said, nope, it's gone for good. This game, I told you, I warned you, it's not good for you. It puts you on edge, at least for right now. You cannot handle playing this game and then act well at the same time. And so it's gone forever. He gets to school, his friends are asking him, hey, Levi, you know, where are you on Fortnite? Are you gonna play with the, you know, whatever? And he's like, I, you know, I can't play, I'm grounded from it. His friends say, well, how long? And he said, well, my, my dad said forever. And they're like, What? forever. Like that's a pretty harsh punishment. And then they told him this, don't worry. Don't worry. They'll give in. They actually said this to him. All parents say that, but they give in. So a year's gone by and I haven't given in. And you're probably wondering now, Clayton, did you ever give in? And while I would love to say I didn't, I did. After a year, a year went by and he asked if I, he could play again. I said, okay, Levi, I'll give you another chance. But once again, this game has proven to not be good for you. And so we'll see how you do this time. We'll let you play it and see. But if you can't act right, and if you're going to get all anxious and disrespectful and pop off to people and all that kind, while you're playing this game or after you're playing this game, then it's gone again. For how long? For good this time. And I mean it. I mean forever. But you know, short-term consequences can turn into long-term consequences if we're not careful. And so let's talk about these two consequences of sin, the short-term and the long-term. Number one, let's talk about the short-term. These are the temporal consequences of sin, the temporal consequences of sin. In Genesis chapter four, we see a lot of consequences of sin. Some of them are Temporal, here's the the first one. Number one, the first temporal consequence of sin is forfeiting the presence of God. Forfeiting the presence of God. Cain offends God with his sin. God says, "You, you may have sinned against your brother, but his blood's crying out to me and your sin offends me. And make no mistake, we talked about this last week. God hates your sin. It offends him eternally and infinitely offends him. And so Cain, as a result, is banished from the ground. And Cain says this, I was banished from the ground and from your presence. You see, when we sin against God, there's a break in the relationship. There's a distance there. Our sin separates us from God. And that's what happens with Cain. He's banished from the ground. He's banished from God's presence. And Cain says this, I've become a homeless wanderer. It's a feeling of not being at home. It's a feeling of being lost, no peace. It reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. Jesus talked about a son who in his arrogance demanded his inheritance from his dad and his dad obliged and he went and spent it, ran out of money on parties and wild living and he ends up at a pig pen, destitute, nothing to eat, no money, everything's gone. He's a homeless wanderer, lost, lost from his home where he belongs. There's a separation. There's a brokenness in his relationship with his father that separates him from his father. So we forfeit the presence of God. Secondly, Temporal consequences of sin are forfeiting the provision of God. When we sin, we forfeit the provision of God. God says to Cain, you're going to work hard. You're going to work the ground, but no fruit is going to come from it. In other words, you can work as hard as you want. You can put in all the the effort and the blood, sweat, and tears that you want, but nothing is going to come from it. You see, when God is with you, when he's fighting for you, when his favor, when his hand of blessing is on you, You can work, and sometimes it's multiplied over and over and over and over again. But when God's hand of blessing, when his favor is not on you, you can work as hard as you want. You can put in all the effort that you want, the blood, sweat, and tears, and nothing can come from it. You see, when you sin against God, you forfeit the provision of God. Third, when we sin against God, we forfeit the protection of God. God says, this earth that you've worked before and you've received fruit from, it's it's now cursed too. In the same way God said in Genesis chapter three, the chapter right before this, he said to, to, to Adam and Eve, he said, the ground is going to be cursed as a result of this sin, this paradise that I've created for you, this paradise of protection, has been cursed. And so now we see things like famine and natural disasters and the world literally decaying and dying as a result of sin, just like our bodies do. You're going to work it, but nothing is going to come from it. It's not going to produce anything. So, so the world is cursed. And so now we no longer have this protection of God, this paradise to live in But secondly, when, when Cain is forced to leave, his presence in this ground. Cain says, these, these people are going to they're gonna kill me. I'm in danger. If I'm not with you and in your presence and under that umbrella, I'm in danger. People are going to want to harm me. When you sin against God, you forfeit the protection of God. Next, when you sin against God, you forfeit the people of God. Sin wrecks relationships. It puts us at war with people. It puts us at war in our marriages. It puts us at war with our children and our children with us. Sin brings war. When we sin against God, we forfeit the people of God. Our relationships are broken. And then finally, when we sin against God, we forfeit the plans of God. When you sin against God, you forfeit the plans of God. In this day, in this culture, typically the the blessing that the father would put over, the son was the oldest son. It was the blessing to carry on kind of the the, the family name. It was in the scripture who we normally and typically see God's people uh, going through, like through the, the nation of Israel that would lead to the Messiah oftentimes the the norm is that that goes through and that is carried on through the oldest son. In this case, it would have been Cain, but now the blessing is passed on to the next son that Adam and Eve would have. His name is Seth. And so when you study the lineage of Christ and the nation of Israel, it goes back to Seth, not to Cain. Cain forfeited the plans of God. He forfeited God's best for his life. But here's the problem with temporal consequences to sin is that they can often become eternal consequences to sin. Eternal consequences of sin are just the temporary becoming eternal. And so here's what that looks like. The forfeiting the presence of God becomes this eternal banishment from the presence of God in hell. It's this feeling in hell of being eternally lost and never at peace, forfeiting the provision of God becomes this eternal feeling of being unfulfilled and not content and not satisfied. Forfeiting the protection of God becomes this experiencing the pain of hell where Jesus said the fire never ends, the torture, the destruction never end because you were outside the protection of God. Forfeiting the people of God becomes this feeling of being eternally alone. You're not in hell like some people would lead you to think in a party with other sinners. You are eternally alone. Forfeiting the plans of God becomes this eternal feeling of what would have been. This eternal and infinite sense of regret that you missed out on what your loving father God in heaven had for you. The eternal consequences of sin are just the temporary becoming eternal. Now, you might be like Cain and you would say, that's too much. And maybe you thought that before when you're thinking about the consequences of your sin. Maybe you thought, this is too much. This isn't fair, we might say. Right? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I read through the book of Revelation and I'm a pastor, I'm like, this is a lot. This feels like my emotions are, this is too much eternity in hell for sin. It feels like, I think if you're honest, you would say it feels like it's too much, just like Cain. And that's what we think. And that's what we believe. And that's what we say in our broken, sinful state. We don't understand something. We don't understand that who you offend determines the level of the punishment. You see, if after church, you didn't like what I said, and you just came up and you decided to punch me right in the face, okay? there's gonna be some consequences, okay? We've got cops here, undercover cops. You're probably gonna get tackled. You may even get shot, okay? I don't know, I can't, I can't speak for them, okay? So there's gonna be a consequence, all right? Uh, I, I might press charges against you. Now I'm a pastor, so you know, it's 50-50, all right? You're gonna to have to take your chances and see what happens, all right? But you might have charges pressed against you. Now, if that cop that tackles you after you punch me, you punch him, now you're in a lot worse trouble. Why? Because who you've offended determines the level of the punishment. If you walked up to Governor Abbott and you punched him in the face, the consequences are gonna be much more severe than having punched the cop. If you go up and you punch President President Trump in the face, the consequences are gonna be much more severe than having punched Governor Abbott or punching me or punching the cop. Who you offend determines the level of the consequence. You see, what you've got to understand is that in your sin, in my sin, we have offended an infinitely holy, infinitely righteous, infinitely just, and infinitely powerful God. So the consequence for our sin is infinite. It's eternal. Who you've offended determines the level of the consequence, the level of the punishment. And so now you might be thinking, well, Clayton, are you saying there's degrees to sin? Well, yes and no. No, in the sense of my sin, your sin, it all equally separates us from God. There's not like sin that separates me more from God and you less from God. No, no, our, our, our sin means we just, we fall short of God's perfect standard of holiness. And so in that sense, there are not degrees to sin because whether there's pride in my heart or I kill someone, uh, it all equally separates me From God. But in terms of its consequence, yes, if there's pride in my heart, it doesn't affect me and other people the same way, or at least to the degree of me carrying out that pride or that anger and actually killing someone that affects a lot more people. And so the consequence is much more severe. So are there degrees to our sin? Yes and no. For sure, in terms of its consequence and destruction in our lives, in that sense, there are degrees to our sins. So, three challenges in light of everything that we just said. Here's number one. Here's the first challenge. When you experience the curse of sin, and the curse of sin is everything we've been talking about, the punishment of sin, the consequences of sin. When you experience the curse of sin, curse sin, not God. Curse your sin. Don't curse God, a lot of times when we experience the consequences of our sin, we curse God. How could you do this to me? Why did you do this to me? Instead of cursing our sin. You see, God never wanted any of this for us. God didn't design our bodies to get sick. He didn't design them to die. He didn't design this planet to operate the way that it operates now. There there was no famine in the Garden of Eden. There were no tornadoes and tsunamis. None of that stuff existed in the Garden. It was a perfect paradise. So, So what changed? Did God change? No. We were the ones who changed. We were the ones who stepped into sin knowing the curse of sin was death. And before you blame Adam and Eve, we do the same thing every day. We know the curse of sin. As Christians, we definitely should. We know the curse of sin is death and destruction, and yet we continue to indulge anyways. But when we experience the curse of sin, we curse sin, not God. When we don't, and when we say, God, how could you do this to me? You're you're supposed to be good. You're all powerful and all good. How could you let something like this happen to me? How could you let these consequences happen in my life? It sounds like a child blaming their parents for the consequences of their sin. When our kids mess up and there's a punishment, oftentimes, I don't know about yours, they get mad at us. I'm like, why are you getting mad at me? You, You chose this. You chose to do this. And so in doing so, you chose the consequence. Oftentimes, I don't know about you, I tell my kids beforehand, hey, this is the right choice, this is the wrong choice. If you make the wrong choice, here's the consequence. So remember, just right, right now, let's remember this. If you do what's wrong, you're choosing the consequence too. It's your choice, it's not mine. So, so don't blame me. It's why I used the word forfeit earlier. Because when we sin, we're forfeiting all the good things and we're choosing all the bad things. Most of us understand the word forfeit, right? It's a choice to take the L, to take the loss and to give the other team the win. It's a choice, you're giving it up, you're giving that game up. Well, when we sin, we are forfeiting the provision of God, the protection of God, the presence of God, the people of God, the plan. We're forfeiting those things and saying, nope, I don't want that, I want the consequence. It's our choice. And so when we sin and we experience the curse of sin, we should curse sin and not God. Sometimes your mess is your fault. It's never God's fault. Sometimes it's it's not Satan's fault. It's not other people's fault. Sometimes, a lot of times, the mess we find ourselves in is our fault. And ultimately, I'm not saying specifically like in this moment, but ultimately all sickness, all death, all natural disasters are the result of sin. Now you could say, well, did this happen because of this? I don't know. We can't determine that. We don't know those things. But what we do know is ultimately, yes, they are the result of sin. And so we curse sin, not God. This isn't what he wanted for us. Second challenge is this. When you experience the curse of sin, confess your sin. We try to hide our sin. We try to justify our sin. We try to redefine our sin. We talked about that last week, turning our bad choices into good ones and acting like things that are wrong are actually okay and right, or maybe not that big of a deal. We talked about that last week. We've said this here before. When you shift the blame, you stay the same. And so when you experience the curse of your sin, confess your sin. First John one verse nine says this. If you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. When you come to God and confess your sin, he forgives you and he cleanses you and he puts you back together. And there's change and there's healing that takes place when you confess your sin your sin. Secondly, James, the brother of Jesus said this, when you confess your sin to like to other Christians, people who love you and care about you and are are following Jesus with you, when you confess your sin to other Christians, it brings healing. And so listen, the longer that we try to dodge our sin and justify our sin and neglect our sin, the longer we go without calling it out and naming it for what it is and confessing it to God, the longer we go, the longer we go without healing. When you confess your sin, it brings forgiveness and cleansing and healing. And we'll talk some more about that next week. But the third challenge is this. When you experience the curse of sin, come to the cross. When you experience the curse of your sin, when you realize the curse of your sin, come to the cross. Here's why. And don't miss this. Because the cross keeps temporal consequences from becoming eternal consequences. I'll explain here in just a second, but don't miss this. It's the cross that keeps temporal consequences from becoming eternal consequences. And I think if you're here and you, hear, you heard all the, the temporal and eternal, you'd be like, man, I don't want my temporary consequences carrying on into eternity. I, I'd like to get that over and done with right now. How how do we do it? Well, it's the cross. The cross keeps the temporal consequences from becoming eternal consequences. We read this last week, but in Galatians chapter three, Paul says this, if you do not continue to do everything written in this book perfectly from the day you were born to the day you die, then you are under a curse because you have broken God's law. You break man's law, you pay man's fine. You break God's law, you pay God's fine. And Paul says in Galatians chapter three, that if you don't do everything perfect as it is written in this book, then you have fallen short of God's standard and have a relationship with him and to go to heaven when you die and you are under the curse of sin. You're cursed. If you can't do everything written in this book all the time and perfectly, you're cursed. Romans 6.23 says it like this, the wages of sin is death. The punishment, the price, the fine, the consequence for sin is death. It goes all the way back to in the beginning when God told Adam and Eve, if you eat from this tree, if you disobey me, it's going to bring death death. The curse of sin is death. And that's what the Bible sums up the consequences of sin. It uses this word, death. It's eternity separated from God in a place called hell. You've offended an infinitely and eternally holy, righteous, and just God. And so the consequence for your sin is eternal and infinite. But the great news of the gospel is that it goes on to say in Galatians chapter three, that even though the curse of sin is death, that Christ became a curse for us when he died on that tree. When he died on that cross and he had those nails driven into his hands and driven into his feet, he paid your fine for sin. He paid my fine for sin. He became a curse for us. Paul says in second Corinthians five, he, he says it like this, he who knew no sin became sin for us. So that, so that those of us who are in Christ would become the righteousness of God. We would become right with God. You see, here, here's, what, here's what happens when you give your life to Jesus. He takes the curse of sin on your life, death. He, he takes that. The, the wrath of God against your sin that we talked about last week. He, he takes that on himself. And when you give your life to Jesus, the, the scripture says Christ is in you and you are in him. We sang that song earlier that, that, that said, uh, I, I'm hid in Christ on high with Christ, my savior and my God. What, what it's saying there is you're hidden in Christ and Christ is in you. And so when you stand before God one day, and the Bible says all of us will, when you stand before him one day, God doesn't see your sin. No, he sees the perfect, spotless, righteous life of Christ. Jesus takes your sin. He takes the punishment of your sin and you get his righteous life. That's the gospel. But it only happens when you give your life to Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, even though they die, they will live. They will live forever with me in paradise. The paradise that I originally created, I originally intended for you to live in. You see, here's what you've got to understand. Jesus didn't come to make bad people, good people. Jesus came to make dead people alive. The Bible says you're dead in your sin. You're headed to hell, the eternal consequence of your sin. But God loved you so much that he sent Jesus to die in your place for your sin. And so Romans 9 says it like this. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave. Then you will be saved. Your sin will be forgiven. You'll may be right with God. And you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. And if you've never made that decision before, because you've been trusting in your good works. Maybe your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds. And I want you to know today, today is your day because good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do, and you're forgiven of your sin when you give your life to Jesus. Not when you've done better, not when you've tried harder. Do not leave this place thinking, man, I have sin. I'm gonna do better and try harder. No, no, no. When you sin and when you experience the curse of sin, you come to the cross. You don't do better and try harder. You come to the cross where your sin is forgiven. You're made right with God. And you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. And if that's you and you need to give your life to Jesus today, man, jump on our app, fill out our connect form, check that box. that says you're giving your life to Jesus. If you don't have that, you can go to our welcome center. They have got iPads there. You can fill out that form there and check that box. that says you're giving your life to Jesus. You see, Jesus took the eternal consequences of your sin upon himself, which leaves us to say, well, then as a Christian, then do I still experience any temporal consequence? Jesus paid for the eternal consequence. What about the temporary consequences of my sin? Do I still get to experience those? Well, when we sin, even though as Christians, even though God doesn't cease to love us, he is displeased with us. There's some teaching out there today that says because you are a follower of Jesus, and you've been made holy and righteous and spotless and without blemish through the blood of Christ, which is true, that God is never displeased with you. He is always pleased with you. That is false. That's not understanding the legal position that we have with God versus the relational position we have with God. And you gotta understand the difference. Your legal position is that you are holy, spotless, righteous, and without blemish in the eyes of God. That's your legal position but your relational position, the closeness that you have with God is affected by your sin because God is displeased with us when we sin. And most of us understand this concept. You may just not have realized it because if you're a parent or if you're married, then you know that your spouse can screw up, your child can mess up. Now don't say amen and don't elbow anybody right now, but they can mess up and it might affect your relational standing But it doesn't affect your legal standing. My kids could mess up all day long, but it will never affect their legal position, their legal relationship with me. But it does affect their closeness to me. Their sin can hurt me. It can hurt our relationship. It can break our relationship. But it doesn't change their legal position. They're still my kids. I still love them. I still want what's best for them even though I might be displeased with what they're doing right now. You see, the Bible says it like this. Paul writes in Ephesians four, verse 30, that we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The author of Hebrews says it like this. The Lord disciplines those he loves. The father of spirits later, the writer of Hebrews says disciplines us for our good. In Revelation chapter three, The risen Christ is speaking to the church at Laodicea. And he says this, those whom I love, I rebuke and chastise. So be zealous and repent of your sin. You see, we see this idea of love and rebuke, love and displeasure all at the same time. The Westminster, Westminster rather, Confession of Faith says it like this, although they, speaking of Christians, can never fall from the state of justification. That's your legal position with God. Holy, spotless, sin is forgiven, right? That's your legal position. The Bible calls it justification. Although you can never fall from that state, regardless of what you may do as a Christian, because your sin has been paid for past, present and future, they may, by their sin, fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sin, beg pardon, and renew their faith in repentance. Your legal standing doesn't change. But the relationship can be affected when we disobey God. God the father is grieved just like an earthly father is grieved with their children's disobedience and he disciplines us because we are choosing things that hurt him, that hurt ourselves and hurt others. But any good father, when their child who's learning to walk, trips and stumbles, gets down and helps them up. They don't stand over that child and berate them. They're not angry with that child. They don't leave that child when they trip and fall. No, no, no. A good father gets down and helps their kid up and helps them take that next step and helps them learn to keep walking. That's what a good father does. And that's what your heavenly father is doing for you right now. It reminds me of the end of the story that Jesus told about this prodigal son, this son who left home squandered everything. The, Jesus says that, that, that this son in this, this pig pen realizes he's destitute, he has no home, he has no way of, uh, of eating or providing for himself. And he says this, maybe if I go back home, maybe, maybe if I go back home, I could experience what it's like to be a son again. so Jesus says, he comes to his senses and he goes back home. Now, most of us think, if you don't know the story, most of us would probably think that when the son comes back home, the father standing here like this, right? Tapping his foot, arms crossed. How could you do it? Look at you. Yeah, now you're coming back home. Now you need my help. Look at you now. That's how we would think the story ends, but it's not. When the son who's been away comes back home, he sees his father with a huge smile on his face, with his arms open, not crossed, open. He gets a huge hug and there's a party that's thrown because the son who was lost came back home. And I would invite you to do that today. Maybe you've been away. Maybe you've been blaming God. But maybe today is your day to curse your sin, to confess your sin and to come to the cross or maybe to come back to the cross. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that right now that every person in this room would see their father with arms open wide, welcoming them home, maybe welcoming them back home. And God, we thank you that you are a great heavenly father who loves us, who wants what's best for us and is ready right now to pick us up, to clean us off and to help us take that next step. So God, by your grace, would you move in our hearts and draw us to yourself. It's in your name we pray.